Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause the covenant love of your crucified Son to overwhelm our hearts, and we pray that your word would do the work in us and that we would be people who are able to embrace everything Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. Lord, we pray that we would be able to live this out for your glory. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, amen. I want to begin this morning by reading to you a little bit of the publisher's description of a book that uh, Matt D'Amico recommended to me several years ago called Boys in the Boat. It's about the 1936 University of Washington rowing team, which, uh, I mean, these guys, according to this publisher's description, the team was composed of the sons of loggers, shipyard workers, and farmers. And, And the book details the way that these guys often, they weren't eating from some Olympic training table. Uh, they were often scraping together to to get enough food to feed themselves and keep themselves alive in the midst of the Great Depression there in 1936. And against all expectation, they were the, the description goes on, they were never expected to defeat the elite teams of the East Coast and Great Britain, yet they did, going on to shock the world by defeating the German team, who was ro- which was rowing for Adolf Hitler. And, and in this story of how this University of Washington rowing team, how they, they went on to win a gold medal, there, there are these beautiful statements about unity, about the way that a group of people come together to form a team. The author writes at one point, I, I sent this quotation to the elders this week because this is what it is to be, I mean, this is what it is to be the church. This is what it is to be part of a team. The author wrote, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength, but they have no stars. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, the single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters, not the individual, not the self. And then the author went on to say that every boy in that boat felt exactly the same. Every one of them believed he was simply lucky to be rowing in the boat, that he didn't really measure up to the obvious greatness of the other boys, and that he might fail the others at any moment. So these guys came together and they accomplished something magnificent. They won an Olympic gold medal in 1936. Do you believe this morning that the members of Kenwood Baptist Church at Victory Memorial are after something that is more significant, more important, more lasting than an Olympic gold medal? We really are. 
We really are. We are about the task of making disciples of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. We're going to be making disciples from all nations. And all the things that could divide all these people from all these different nations, all these different backgrounds, they're all going to come. They're, they're going to be overcome. And, and disciples from all nations, as are represented here this morning, disciples from all nations are actually going to love each other. Isn't that remarkable? That's remarkable, and it is, going, it's a, it is and it will be a display of the very glory of God. And there's a lot left to be done. There's a lot left to be done. Maybe you were here a couple of weeks ago when Jeremy Farmer presented, and he talked about the, the fruit that, that they are seeing there in Cambodia. And maybe you saw on the slide on the screen that he put up that, that little seedling that had been planted and had begun to grow, but the leaf had not yet broken the surface of the ground. That image, the image of, of the seed being planted and the soil being right and the thing having life, but not, it, it, it not yet being strong, it being delicate, that's going to be an important image for us as we think about the passage that we're going to look at this morning. I would invite you to look with me at Romans chapter 14. And we'll be looking at the second half of this chapter. And, and as we come into this passage, I would just remind you of, of what is happening here. What's happening here at this point in Romans is Paul has explained the gospel in the first 11 chapters of the book. And now what he's doing is applying the gospel to the annoying details of life. It, Paul has laid out the gospel. He's laid out the truth that we're sinners, we're we're wicked before God, Romans 1 through 3. None of us can justify ourselves by our own actions, by our own accomplishments. And then at the end of Romans 3, he talks about how Jesus came and, and he was put forward by God the Father as a sacrifice of propitiation to atone for our sins. And then in Romans 4, he explains how, just as, Paul, as uh, Todd prayed, Paul explains how faith is reckoned as righteousness so that people who are not righteous are reckoned righteous because of their faith in Jesus. So because of what Jesus has done, because we trust in that, God counts us righteous before him. And this is not accomplished because of our deeds. It's, it's as a result of faith. And then Paul begins to talk about the life that flows out of this. And, and what he's doing now in Romans 14, it's as, though he, it's as though he knows what's going on in the church in Rome, which is a remarkable thing because he's not been there yet. And yet, Chapter 16, we're going to see he knows all these people in Rome. And, and it's not as explicit as, in, as it is in 1 Corinthians when he, he outright tells them, you know, in your letter you said this to me. And he, so he, he, it's not as explicit as that, but it seems he knows what's going on in the church in Rome. And he seems to know that some of these new Christians uh, have come out of Jewish backgrounds and they have sensitivities and hang-ups and qualms about food, and other Christians have come out of Gentile backgrounds, and they have no problem eating whatever is put before them. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the first uh, 12 verses of this chapter, and we saw there the way that Paul urges these both groups to recognize that we don't, eat, we don't live to abstain from food, and we don't live to eat food. We live for Jesus. And, and so those who abstain should not judge those who eat, 
And those who eat should not despise those who judge them, who abstain. So, so we need to leave all judgment to the Lord. And he's going to continue now addressing this. And as we consider this, I would just invite you to think in your life. Maybe this is not hard for you to do. Think in your life of someone who really bothers you. Someone whose habits or their attitudes or their practices, they just annoy you. And, and maybe there's someone like that here in this church. And this is what Paul is speaking to. Because the, the, the visceral lack of appreciation, dissatisfaction, the, the dislike that comes out of us is what Paul is addressing. That's what these, these different groups, the strong and the weak, would have felt regarding one another. And what Paul is going to say in verses 13 through 16 is that for the kingdom, all of us should avoid causing our brothers and sisters to stumble. For the sake of the kingdom, we should resolve not to put any stumbling, stumbling block before a brother or sister. That's what he's going to say in verses 13 through 16. And then in verses 17 through 20, he's going to state what the kingdom is, what really comprises the kingdom of God. And then in, in verses 21 and 23, it's like he's going to come back and say it again. Do not cause your brothers and sisters to stumble. So really, we could sum all of this up in this way. Paul is saying, you must love one another. You must love one another. And the love for one another is to, be a, is to grow out of the gospel, and it's to be applied at the points of annoyance. So that's, what, that's what's before us. Look with me here at verse 13. Paul writes here, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And the reason he says this is, this comes right out of verse 12. In verse 12, he says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And if you were here two weeks ago, you may remember that, that I suggested that for these folks who are abstaining from food, they need to believe that Jesus is big enough to declare all foods clean. They need to, to know that Jesus has the authority to declare all foods clean. To, to say, as Todd read him say, all things are clean for you. They need to know that Jesus is that big, and, and they also need to trust that God is enough of a judge. God is enough of a judge. And then these people who are, uh, who are partaking and maybe despising the other crowd, they too need to know that God is big enough to grow these people up so that they accept the authority of Jesus over food and they get over some of these hang-ups. So everybody needs to just commit themselves to the Lord Jesus here. And, and you know, that this image of that plant, that, that the little seedling that's come to life, Jesus says repeatedly, in, in places like John 15, he says things like, you will bear fruit. How does he know that? He knows that because he's the Lord. So all of us, we can just, we can just trust ourselves to Jesus, who is going to cause the fruit to come. Each of us will give an account of himself to God, verse 12. Therefore, verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Okay, so application, point of application here growing out of this text, we can't have a judgmental spirit toward one another. 
when we feel it arise, and it will arise because we are human beings, when we feel it arise, we got to put it to death. we got to crucify it. By the spirit, spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. And the weapons that you use to fight it, to put, it to, to put the judgmental, critical, condemning spirit to death or the despising spirit to death, the weapons that you use are the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Somebody says something that annoys you. You just think to yourself, the Lord's going to judge them. They'll give an account to the Lord. And then if you think, well, but they need to grow, then you need to think, yes, and the Spirit of God and the Word of God is sufficient to cause this person to bear fruit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and I'm going to love and I'm going to build a relationship. And if I find myself in a relationship where it's appropriate for me to say, you know, I think you'd really be helped in this way. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to say something like that, but it won't be in a critical or judgmental, or condemning spirit, nor will it be in a despising spirit. So let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, verse 13, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now what Paul is doing here is he's speaking to the strong. I think most of the comments in Romans 14 13 through 23, are going to be addressed to the strong, those who think, I can eat whatever I want to eat because the Lord Jesus has declared all foods clean. And, and what Paul is saying to that group, it's as, it's as though he's saying, yes, you're right. You're correct, and I'm with you. But you can't cause your brothers to stumble. It's as though he wants them to realize that that little seed has just come to life and if you come romping over that in your big heavy boots, you're going to stamp out the life in that seed. So, so rather decide, and the word decide here is you could render this judge. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather judge, judge in our hearts, resolve in our hearts, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. And, and this language of stumbling block and hindrance this is the kind of thing that causes people to abandon the faith. And what Paul is saying is, if you run roughshod over these people, if you just flaunt your freedoms in front of them, it could cause them to abandon the faith. So he's appealing to the strong that they love the weak enough to have regard for their feelings. Never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I think when he says there, I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, what he's saying is, I know the Jesus tradition. I know that Jesus, Mark 7, declared all foods clean. I know that Jesus said, like we read earlier in the service, everything is clean for you. I know that. He, he knows that. He, he knows it fully. He's persuaded in the Lord Jesus that, that everything is clean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, this is a little bit tricky here, but, but it, it's kind of the to the pure, all things are pure statement. If, if you know the scriptures and you're confident in the Lord Jesus, yes, that's clean. But if these people, if they reckon it unclean, it is unclean to them. And, and Paul's going to return 
to this idea, and it gets to the strength of their faith. We'll come back to this as we, as we work to the, through the passage as Paul comes back to it. Verse 15, Paul explains at this point, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat. And so I think what he's doing is he's, he's detailing what he means by a stumbling block or a hindrance from verse 13. If your brother is, if, so this is a brother, this is a Christian, a fellow Christian. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So there he states it. If you disregard those who are weak in faith, and they consider that those things to be unclean, you disregard their feelings, and you go ahead and eat, what you're doing is you're grieving them, and you're putting a stumbling block and a hindrance in front of them. And then he, and then he just gives this command here in verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We could reword this, I think, and we could say something like this. In the way that you relate to one another in the church, in the life of the congregation, you need to love one another the way that Christ loved you. Christ laid down his life. He died for the, these people. And so can you not forego something that you feel you're free to partake in for their behalf, on their behalf? By what you eat... By, by the exercise of your freedom in Christ, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This would be like, if, if we go back to that illustration of, of those boys in the boat, it would be like one of those guys saying, you know, I think the best oars for this boat are the oars made by this company. And I'm going to pitch such a fit that we use those oars that nobody else on the crew team can get along with me. And I am not going to be happy until we use those oars. What would that do? It would destroy the team. That, that author, uh, Daniel James Brown, he, he comments on the way that... I'm going, to, I'm going to read to you this quotation about these guys in the boat... He says, what mattered more than how hard a man rode was how well everything he did in the boat harmonized with what the other fellows were doing. And a man couldn't harmonize with his crewmates unless he opened his heart to them. He had to care about his crew. That's what made them go. That's what made them win. And this is what we need. We need this harmony and this concern for one another that makes us able to recognize when we're being offensive. Some of us need to, need to turn up the, the volume on our antennae reception and realize how we come across. I, I'm, I'm, I recognize I need this. I, don't often, I often don't realize how I come across. And, and we, need to, we need to be open to people saying, hey, you know, when you do this, it really offends me. And, and then we need to be sensitive to that. We don't want to just run over that seedling. If we do that, we're not walking in love. If we do that, we could destroy the one for whom Christ died by our exercise of what we regard as our freedom. Verse 16, Paul says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. What, what I think he means immediately, the, the immediate relevance of this statement is, this food is clean, and you regard that food as clean, and, and it's good to eat that food. But if you eat it 
in a way that grieves or hinders or causes other Christians to stumble, that good thing, the good eating of that food is going to be spoken of as evil. I think that's the immediate um, statement. But then it's like he broadens it out in the next verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, uh, verse 16, do not let what you regard as good, and then the explanation, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. What Paul is saying, it's like what he said in the first half of the chapter. In the first half of the chapter, he said, look, we don't live to eat. We don't, we don't live to abstain from food. That's not why we, we live for Jesus. And here he's saying, don't let the good eating of that food be spoken of as evil because the kingdom is not about food. The kingdom is not about you exercising all the freedoms that Jesus has given to you. The kingdom, listen to what he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That first term, righteousness, I think what Paul has in view is the righteousness that is reckoned to us by faith. The the righteousness that belongs to God himself, that belongs to Jesus, that none of us have earned, that if if we turn away from our sin and we put our hope and trust in Jesus, God credits to our account. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, if you hear people talk about justification or if you hear people talk about being made right with God, that's really what we're talking about. Because the, 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 the fundamental issue in Christianity is this. How do you stand before God? And the answer that the Bible gives is all of us are guilty before God. You don't don't have to read very many pages in the Bible before you run into this statement in Genesis 6 where it says that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. That's who we are before God. And what the Bible, the good news of the Bible is that because of what God has done in Jesus, those who recognize what sin is and turn away from it and, and who give themselves to Jesus, who trust fully in Jesus, those people will be made righteous before God. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, that's what we want for you. We think that your biggest problem is the fact that you're going to stand before God and like verse 12 says, have to give an account of yourself to God. And what we want for you is for you to be considered righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to talk more about that afterwards, I'll be around. Uh, You can probably look at the person next to you, the person that maybe invited you here this morning, and they'll be thrilled to talk with you further about how how to be made right with God. We'd love to talk with you more about that. And then look at what else the kingdom of God is about. It's about this righteousness whereby we're acceptable to God and then peace. Peace. This is talking, I think, about both peace with God and peace with one another. Reconciliation. Reconciliation with God and then this shalom that exists between us. The kingdom of God is not about the fact that I can eat certain foods now. I can eat pork now. I love pork. That's great. I love barbecue. That's magnificent. But that's not what the kingdom of God consists in. The kingdom of God consists in being made right before God and then having peace with the brotherhood 
with, with my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are supernatural, miraculous things. We're talking about a, a, how does God make it so that an unrighteous person is reckoned righteous? Well, that's a miracle that God has accomplished through the Lord Jesus. How does God make it so that people who are annoying to one another are, are actually at peace with one another and able to look past the things that are bothersome? And they really do. And then how does God make it so that a bunch of grumbling, complaining, hard-hearted people feel joy. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that God does, and that's the kingdom. It's the kingdom that's on display among us. You want to experience that? Come live with us here at Kenwood Baptist Church. Come be part of this congregation. Embrace what we believe. Walk with us. That guy Daniel James Brown, he said this about, about the guys in that boat. He said they were all merged into one smoothly working machine. They were, in fact, a poem of motion, a symphony of swinging blades. You know, that's what, that's what we want to be with respect to an event like this, this, this outreach event. We, we want to be one smoothly working machine where everyone is doing their part, Nobody's looking out for themselves. We're all trying to advance the gospel. We're all trying to build Christ's kingdom. We're all aiming toward righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what we're all giving ourselves to. Look at verse 18. Paul says, Whoever thus serves Christ... You serve Christ in such a way that you aim at people being reckoned righteous by faith. You serve Christ in such a way that you enjoy the peace that exists between the members of a congregation. You serve Christ in such a way that you feel this joy in your soul that only God gives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ, and, and to, to get to the issues in the passage, the strong people who know that all foods are clean, but they look over there at their weak brethren and they know it's a, it's a newly planted little sprout. It's just begun to grow. I don't need to offend them. I don't have to eat meat in front of them. I don't, I don't have to flaunt my privileges in front of them. I don't have to despise the way that they respond to me. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. What Paul is saying is, this is what it looks like to live out the gospel. You want to please God? You live out the gospel. You conduct yourself with reference to the other people in the church in a Christ-like way, which is what he said at the end of chapter 13 when, when he said in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And earlier in chapter 13, he had said in, in verse 8, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So what Paul is doing, really, is he's putting together things that, that could be a little bit contradictory, right? On the one hand, Jesus said, all foods are clean. And Jesus also said, love one another as I have loved you. And Paul is saying, this is how those two things go together. Yes, Jesus said, all foods are clean. But the weightier matter in the law, if you will, is... Love one another as I have loved you. 
This is the way that this is the way that you live in such a way, serve Christ in such a way that you're acceptable to God and approved by men. It's like Paul is saying, you remember Jesus saying, we, we, this was our call to worship, you remember Jesus saying, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Other people are going to look at the way that these people relate and they're going to know. There's lots of reason for those people to be unhappy with each other. There's lots of reason for those people to be annoyed with each other. And they love each other. Whatever it is, it's good. So the unbelieving world is going to look at this and say, this is acceptable. This is, this is good. And, and they're going to know that we're followers of Jesus. And also, within the congregation, we're going to look at each other. And we're not going to feel like, yes, he's got that freedom, but he doesn't have to exercise it that way. No, we're going to be like, look at that Christ-likeness. Look at that laying down of one's life for the others in the congregation. It's acceptable to God, and it's approved by men. It, this is kind of another way of saying it, it, that the Bible is giving you everything you need for life, to be saved, to know God, and to have eternal life, and godliness, how to live in such a way that, that you're, you're, you're living out the gospel and, and you're commending it to other people. Verse 19, Paul writes, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace. And, and there, there's that item from the kingdom. There in verse 17, the kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Sorry to be giving you all these quotes from... Uh, boys in the boat, but they're really good. So I got another one for you. Um, this is this is this is from um, this is from the part of the book where they've they've just won one of their races, and the author writes immediately after the race, even as he sat gasping for air in the boat while it drifted down beyond the finish line, an expansive sense of calm had enveloped him. This is talking about this main character in the boat, Joe. In the last desperate few hundred meters of the race, in the searing pain and bewildering noise of that final furious sprint, there had come a singular moment when Joe realized with startling clarity that there was nothing more he could do to win the race beyond what he was already doing, except for one thing, he could finally abandon all doubt. Trust absolutely without reservation that he and the boy in front of him and the boys behind him would all do precisely what they needed to do at precisely the instant they needed to do it. He had known in that instant that there could be no hesitation, no shred of indecision. He had had no choice but to throw himself into each stroke as if he were throwing himself off of a cliff into a void with unquestioned faith that the others would be there to save him. That's the way we trust Jesus, and that's the way we love one another. Like throwing ourselves off a cliff into a void, confident that Christ is going to be there to catch us, confident that our brothers and sisters in the church are going to do what they need to do to make this thing go. That's the way we give ourselves to the Lord. Let us pursue what makes for peace 
and for mutual upbuilding. We're, we're trying to love one another. We're trying to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're trying to build one another up in the faith. Verse 20, do not, Paul says, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. That destruction is the opposite of building up. So Paul is saying, we lay down our lives in the church for one another to build one another up in the faith. We do not exercise our freedoms in disregard of one another in a way that would destroy one another. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. So this is, he's back now to what he had said back in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in, in itself. So here he says that again in verse 20, everything is indeed clean. Jesus has declared all foods clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You can do good things in a way that causes trouble for other people. And that, that's what Paul is saying. And, and what he's saying here is you need to be concerned for the others in the church. You should not exercise your freedom in a way that destroys other people. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Probably, most likely, all of this is related to Jewish concerns about Roman idolatry. It, it, it seems probable that the, the eating of the meat is problematic for some of these Jewish folks because the meat could have been offered up to an idol and then later sold in the market and they don't know where the meats come from, so they're... they're their concern over the meat being clean and it not, being, not having been used in idolatry just makes them uh, abstain from meat altogether. And Paul says, look, if people have concerns about that, honor their concerns. The wine also, uh, the Bible doesn't condemn whole scale altogether the use of wine. Jesus drank wine at the Last Supper and, and apparently he partook in such a way that people called him a wine bibber and a drunkard. I don't think Jesus ever got drunk. Jesus never sinned, but they said that about him. Um, but this wine probably also was used in some form of ritual uh, worship of the Roman gods. And so again, there are probably people saying, well, we don't want to in any way contaminate ourselves from that. We want to stay away from that altogether, so we're just not going to drink wine at all. And Paul says, okay, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The concern, clearly, is the brother. The concern is your fellow brother or sister in Christ. That's the overarching concern. When he says in verse 22, the faith that you have, I think what he means is, certain, some of you, the strong, you have faith that Christ has declared all foods clean, that what I take into my body is not what defiles me, as Jesus taught. What defiles me is what comes out of me. So it doesn't matter if they've used that wine in ritual libations before I got my hands on it. I can drink that wine in faith and I'll be just fine. It doesn't matter if what they were doing with that meat. I can eat that meat trusting Christ. I'm not participating in idolatry. I'll be just fine. And Paul says that faith that you have Verse 22, keep between yourself and God. What he means is, don't exercise it in disregard of your brothers and sisters. I think what he's saying is, the strong need to trust the Lord to grow up the weak, and they need to, not, they need to avoid doing what would grieve, cause to stumble, hinder, or destroy that little sapling. 
that little sprout that's starting to grow, that's starting to, I mean, um, I've told you about my lawn before and the way that it's kind of a, it's not a, it's, I don't have a whole lot of grass under these big trees in the front yard. It's sort of a, uh, uh, when it rains, which hasn't been frequent, it, it becomes just sort of a mud pit out there in the front yard. And, um, and I've planted seed and I've tried to um, get that seed to grow one of, the, one of the problems is that we have this riding lawnmower that we keep using to mow the front yard, and, and you know, those little sprouts of beautiful green grass start coming up, and then here come those big tires, just crushing all those little sprouts. Well, what, what am I going to do? Um, I prefer convenience of the mower to having the grass in the front yard, but I can't have that attitude about my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? My attitude about my brothers and sisters in Christ is that little sprout has to be protected. I can't just ride, the, ride that big tire lawnmower over it. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And then he says at the end of verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Uh, I think he's commending the strong here. And he's saying uh, it's, it's good to have that faith. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves for what they approve what they, what they feel the freedom to eat because of what Jesus has done, verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, and that's why it's unclean. It's not unclean because of the Old Testament law. It's not unclean because the idols really are there, and they've somehow put some sort of magic. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, those idols are nothing to us. There's one God. They're nothing. They don't have any power. What makes it unclean, remember he had said back in verse 14, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. What makes it unclean is the doubts of those who are condemned if they eat because the eating is not from faith. And, and it seems that what Paul means in particular is they need to trust the Lord Jesus. They need to know he's Lord of all. They need to know he has the power to declare all foods clean. They need to know that Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So the old covenant law has come to an end because Jesus has come. The eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Everything that we, knew, we, we do must be done trusting the Lord Jesus completely. This, this kind of self-sacrificial love for one another, a self-sacrificial love that is willing to say, I know I have certain freedoms in Christ. I know I have certain privileges because of what the Lord Jesus has come and done. But more important to me than my appetite, more important to me than showing off my freedoms in Christ are my brothers and sisters, the people with whom I'm in covenant. This kind of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit is what makes it so that a Turkish Jew is able to make disciples of Italian Romans. It's what, make, it's what makes it so that people from all nations are ready to follow this Nazarene carpenter who was crucified in the most brutal manner. This is what will enable a hearing for the gospel, our love for one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, if you love one another. One more quotation from the boys in the boat. 
And this quotation really gets at what a privilege it is to be part of a church like this. What a privilege it is to be, to be united by faith to the Lord Jesus and to one another in this congregation. Um, the, the author, Daniel James Brown, writes this. It was when he tried to talk about the boat that his words began to falter and tears welled up in his eyes. Finally, watching Joe struggle for composure over and over, I realized that the boat was something more than just the shell or its crew. To Joe, it encompassed but transcended both. It was something mysterious and almost beyond definition. It was a shared experience, a singular thing that had unfolded in a golden sliver of time long ago when nine good-hearted young men strove together, pulled together as one, gave everything they had for one another, bound together forever by pride and respect and love. Joe was crying, at least in part, for the loss of that vanished moment, but much more, I think, for the sheer beauty of it. That's what we're doing. We're rowing together. We're pulling together. We want to be people who are giving everything that we have for the Lord Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, we want to expect great things from you and we want to attempt great things for you, all flowing out of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, flowing out of our wonder and amazement that you would, that you would cause us to be righteous before you. Lord, we, we pray that you would increase our ambitions, and we pray that you would prosper our efforts. Lord, we want to plant and water, but you must give the growth. So, Father, we call on you to, to bless us as we seek to invite unbelievers to come. We pray that you would provide for us as we seek to be good stewards of what you've given. We pray that you would give us faith as we consider what you've given us to steward Lord, we want, to be, we want to be generous in ways that, that befit the great task when we contemplate what you would have us give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering this year. Father, we pray that as we think about who will go and when they'll go and where they'll go, Lord, we pray that you would make all of us ready to say, Wherever the Lord leads, I'll go. Here we are, Lord, send us. And Father, we pray that those of us who stay would be good rope holders for the short-termers, for the long-termers. We pray that you'd help us to stay in contact with one another. We pray that you'd help us to, to love one another. And Lord, if there are ways that we annoy each other, help us to not be judgmental, not despise or condemn but to love. Lord, your kingdom consists in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Cause those things, we pray, to increase and abound here. And make it, Lord, so that when we get to the end and we reflect on our lives, 
what will be most significant for us was your church and what it was like to pull together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all these things in the Lord Jesus. Amen.